Sometimes I wonder uh, what Jesus would have looked like if he lived in our world today. I wonder what we would see or read about him in the news. And I wonder how he would go about choosing his disciples in our world. Author Tim Hansel imagines Jesus taking resumes and then sending them to a modern-day consulting firm. What would they say about his disciples? And so Hansel writes a letter from the Jordan management consultants back to Jesus after considering his potential disciples. It says, Dear Sir, Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance, much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. And then the letter says, It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education and vocational aptitude for the types of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have a team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We also feel that it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. The Lord Jesus apparently views his followers a bit differently than our world views them or how our world would view them. There's something apparently unseen or unmeasured that he sees. And I wonder what he sees when he looks at you. My main question this morning is this. If God had an important job or task for someone to do, would he choose you to do it? Let me say that again. If God had an important job or a task for someone to do, would he choose you to do it? The reason I ask that question is because in our text this morning, 
1 Samuel chapter 16, Israel has a rather significant job opening. And so with this in mind, as we look at 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13 and the context, we're going to discover two characteristics that God looks at in choosing his servants and one characteristic that he does not look at. 1 Samuel chapter 16 this morning, we'll read verses 1 through 13, and we'll see what God looks at. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. But... He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in, and he was ready with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. So, just for some context, leading up to chapter 16, if you would read the chapters before that, you would see how Saul has continuously decided to serve himself instead of God in his kingship. And you could probably think of a few examples, but one is uh, the priests are supposed to make sacrifices and He's too impatient, and so he goes ahead and makes the sacrifices for himself, which he's not supposed to do. That's one example. Um, Another example is God tells him in the battle that he's supposed to destroy everything, but he doesn't do that. He keeps some of the stuff for himself and, and for the people that he thought would be good. So there's this selfishness going on in Saul, and that's where we pick up the story in chapter 16, and Samuel is mourning God's rejection of Saul. And I think as you have read this passage with me, you've already learned that the first characteristic 
that God is looking for in his servants is obedience. You know, if God has a job to do, he wants an obedient servant to do it. He doesn't want a servant who serves out of a sense of duty. As king of Israel, Saul knew what was right, but he failed to do it continuously. Instead of showing loving obedience, Saul often does his duties with a sense of performance before God. And it'd be easy for us to look down on Saul and to to condemn him. But I think you and I often do the same thing. Because there's a difference between obedience to God and performance for God. Let me try to get at the difference between obedience to God and performance for God. For example, obedience might be inviting guests to your home for dinner while performance would be feeling anxious about whether every detail of the meal is going to be perfect. Obedience is finding ways to let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Performance is quickly scanning a passage so you can check it off your Bible reading plan. Obedience is doing your best. Performance is wanting to be the best. Obedience is saying yes to whatever God asks of you. Performance is saying yes to whatever people ask of you. Obedience springs from a fear of God. Performance springs from a fear of failure. Seems like the same thing, but those are some slight differences. God knows that as his servants, you and I can often be like Saul. We can be performing, but not really obedient. And, and all of us have sinned, which is, which is why God has sent to us a greater king and a servant than Saul or even David. So this morning we praise God for giving us Jesus Christ, who was the completely obedient servant in dying for us. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, became a servant and was obedient to his Father in heaven. And so through his forgiveness and power... We can and should be obedient servants as well, unlike this example of Saul. So if you're taking notes, and there's notes in your bulletin this morning, what characteristics is God looking at? Well, the first characteristic I've already said that he's looking for is obedience. God is looking at obedience. And then the second thing that we see in 1 Samuel is actually a characteristic that God is not looking at. Earlier in chapter 9, we're given some specific details about Saul, and it says, He was an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. But in chapter 16, Samuel appears in the house of Jesse, looking to anoint a new king. And when Samuel arrives, he sees Eliab, Jesse's oldest son. And apparently, Eliab has a kind of royal look to him, because Samuel was sure that this was the new king. But no. Verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. Personally thankful for that one. I have rejected him, the Lord says. I'm not saying the Lord rejects tall people, but you know, you know what I'm saying. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at his heart or at the heart. So as we go through the story, Jesse has six more sons. Many of them look like they would be first-round draft picks for royalty. But each time, 
Samuel has to say, no, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. So things on the outside may not always indicate what is inside. Samuel is letting Jesse know that a mule dressed in a tuxedo is still a mule, right? Verse 11, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So if you can imagine all of them standing there waiting for the little shepherd to come. But David finally arrives. And the passage tells us he's not a bad-looking guy, apparently handsome. He is the youngest, though. And, And most commentators think that he's somewhere around 15 years old at this point. So he's young. He's a sheep tender. He has no government experience whatsoever. The only thing he really knows how to do, as far as we know, is tend sheep. And, and notice, he hasn't even been invited to the dinner with the prophet and all of his brothers. So he's definitely a dark horse candidate for king. But verse 12, Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. And Samuel anoints David king. So this tells us and shows us that God is not looking at outward appearances. He's not looking at outward appearances. I think this this speaks to us because in our culture today, we're looking at outward appearances. We're judging people on outward appearances. But we see that God doesn't measure by that. The Apostle Paul goes along with that approach as well. In Galatians 2, 6, for example, he says, As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. So when God is choosing his servants for a task, first of all, we, we see in 1 Samuel 16, first, he looks at obedience Secondly, he does not look at the outward appearances. But thirdly, we see that God is looking at your heart. He's looking at your heart. In biblical language, the heart means the center of the human spirit from which springs emotions, thoughts, motivations, courage, and action. While we don't get a picture of Saul's heart in 1 Samuel, we do see his lack of obedience, which flows out of his heart. We're also told earlier in 1 Samuel 13 that God would take the kingdom from Saul and give it to a man after his own heart, who is David. Other scriptures show us that David himself understands the importance of a pure heart for God's servants. In Psalm 51.10, for example, David writes, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then in Psalm 139.23.24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. While in this passage, David is seen as the obedient and the pure king in comparison to Saul. Those of you who have read the the entire story, you know later he is disobedient. He is impure at times himself. 
And I think that's a good reminder for us that while David was a great king, he was a shadow or a forerunner of a greater king and servant who's yet to come in the person of Jesus Christ. Once there was a professor in a chemistry class, and he was teaching his students how acids act on different substances. And so he gave each student a little bit of gold, and he challenged them to try to dissolve dissolve it. And so the students left the gold soaking in some of the most powerful acids that they'd been given, and they left it there overnight. But the next morning when they came, they found that each piece of gold was unchanged. It hadn't broken down a bit. And the, pro- the professor knew this was going to happen, but he thought this was a good way to teach him. And so after that, he gave them another substance called aqua regia. I've never heard of that, but he told them to try that and see if that would do it. And they found that almost instantly that broke the gold down and dissolved it. And so the professor said, well, it won't hurt the lesson today if I take time to tell you that there is one other substance that's just as impenetrable as gold. The professor said, it can't be touched or changed, though a hundred attempts are made upon it, and that substance is our sinful heart. Trial and affliction, riches and honor, imprisonment and punishment will not soften or master it. Education and culture will not dissolve and purify it. There is but one element that has power over it, the blood of Christ the Savior, the purifier of the soul. And so, as God is looking for pure hearts in His servants, we need to know that it's only possible through this cleansing power of Jesus Christ. That it's Jesus only that can forgive your sin. He can wash you as white as snow. He can give you His righteousness. So earlier in the message, I asked you, if God had an important job or a task for someone to do, would He choose you to do it? And before answering that question, I want to first of all say that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, that means that God has already chosen you. You're His child. He's chosen you. Your salvation, your obedience to God, and your purity of heart can only be found in Him. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so it's very clear that God does have important jobs or tasks for us to do as His children. And so the real question is, will we allow God to reign over us and to reign in our hearts? If we ask Him to reign in our hearts, His Spirit can change our hearts. And He wants us to do that. And the, and the Scriptures that you just, said, just read says, He has prepared good works for those whose hearts belong to Him, for His children. He's got things for us to do. And while I cannot tell you specifically what those works are for you individually, I can be confident that God is looking and longing for His servants to follow Him. 
He's longing for his servants to let him reign over their lives and in their lives so that they can do the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. And in this passage, we've seen that God is looking for servants that are not overly concerned with their outward appearance, servants who are wholeheartedly his, and servants who will be obedient to his word. 